turning in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. We have been in Mark's Gospel Sunday morning by Sunday morning, with the exception of last Sunday we took a break from it. But uh, last Sunday morning's ministry, providentially, has a lot of bearing on what we will look at this morning. As we look at what I've entitled the servants' servants. The servants' servants, and we are introduced uh, to all the disciples, or more correctly, the apostles, in our reading today, beginning to read at verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boagenes, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into an house. We end our reading at verse 19. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on Mark's Gospel, when he comes to this particular portion and commenting on it, entitles his chapter, Jesus Pressured Jesus. And of course, it's a parody on the uh, spiritual song that many of you know, Jesus Precious Jesus. Pressure in Jesus' life came from two sources. First of all, the repeated collisions that he had with the then religious establishment, the scribes and the Pharisees. But a second source of pressure to him was the popularity he enjoyed among the ordinary people. Now, of course, in our recent studies, chapter 2, at the beginning of it right through to verse 6 of this chapter, we have been dealing with the collisions that the Lord Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees. And of course, it all climaxed in verse 6 of chapter 3, where we see the Pharisees going forth, and straight away they take counsel with the Herodians against the Lord Jesus, how they might destroy him. They're going to kill him for what they see as transgression of the law, which in effect was just the transgression of their own tradition and interpretation of God's holy word. But now the portion we're looking at this morning focuses on another pressure that was in Jesus' ministry. 
popularity, the other end of the scale, if you like, from opposition. And there were great demands upon the ministry of the Savior because of his success, effectualness, and his popularity among ordinary people. And we're going to see this morning how this popularity added to pressure and how the Lord Jesus coped with such pressure. In other words, the method that he used to offload, if you like. Now we see in this portion in verse 10, first of all, that he had pressure from sick folk. Verse 10 says, he healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many had plagues. Now, if you have a marginal reference Bible, the authorized uh, reference uh, to pressed is that can also be translated rushed. It literally means to fall upon or to jostle. So the picture here is many diseased, leprous, afflicted, ill folk falling upon the Lord Jesus, wanting to be healed. Not only were the sick jostling him, but we find in verse 11, unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him. Now, unclean spirits don't have bodies, but they possess people's bodies, and they most likely forced these people to fall before the Lord Jesus and cried out, You are the Son of God. And straightly Jesus charged that they should not make him known. And the reason for that was he did not want their witness of who he was. He wanted authentic witness from believing people, not from the demon possessed. But what I want you to catch a glimpse of is the added pressure of not only having all these sick folk pressing in and rushing upon him, jostling him, pressurizing him to heal, but all of these supernaturally demon-possessed folk doing the same. Kent Hughes in his commentary captures the scene very well. He says, putting it all together, the ill the feverish, the crippled were pushing and grabbing at Jesus and falling over him. The demonized were malevolently seizing him up with howling his name and, and, and future of combat. The jaundiced Pharisees were watching his every move, waiting for their chance. In other words, you can't underestimate the human strain that would have been upon the Lord Jesus in such a situation. And it was so great that the Lord ordered for the disciples to get a boat so they could go out from shore a little and the crowd would not press upon him in such a manner. I don't want to read too much into such a thought, but the fact of the matter is one of the greatest 21st century problems that we have today is we seem always to be under pressure and experiencing one strain or another. I can identify with Annie Johnson Flint's poem, which is called Press. Listen to the first verse. Pressed out of measure and pressed to all length. Pressed so intensely it seems beyond strength. Pressed in the body, pressed in the soul, pressed in the mind till the dark surges roll. Pressed by foes and pressure by friends. Pressure on pressure till life nearly ends. And of course the Lord Jesus was the perfect God-man. And yet he experienced on a human level pressure. And isn't it wonderful to know when we are pressured that he understands what it is to be pressurized? If you're a mother, 
You know what pressure is. And fathers too, to a lesser extent. A student perhaps. Maybe you're in a professional vocation. And most likely if you're a Christian worker or involved in some work in the Christian church, you will know all too well what it is to know strain and pressure as you serve the Lord. Now the bottom line for the Savior was the more care he took over people, the busier he seemed to get. And it's the same in this life. The better you are at your job, the more people will be looking for you. And the same in ministry. The more effective your ministry and service for the Lord, the more people will come to be ministered to and served. This is what happened in the life of the Lord Jesus. Now our question before us today is, how did he cope? What was his method to deal with this pressure? And what should our method be in our day and age? And to manage the pressure and the demands of his ministry, the Lord implemented an unfailing method that if we implement will help us greatly. Here's the first uh, string, if you like, to the bow. The first step of his method was prayer. Now, Mark doesn't deal with this in too much detail, but we know from Luke's account of the same, uh, the same narrative in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 and 13, that when Mark simply says the Lord Jesus went up to a mountain in verse 13, Luke expands telling us it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. Now, it would be very easy to skip over this and miss it. But the first way the Lord Jesus coped with this ministerial pressure was to take it to God in prayer. To get alone with God. A quiet time in a quiet place up this mountain. Now, I have to say to you that often when I feel myself pressurized in life in general or specifically in ministry, the tendency is to give up on prayer. And to even think that, well, I have more important things and more pressing things to do just at the minute. And prayer is dispensable. I can do it later or tomorrow or again at my convenience. And we see prayer as an extra pressure, an extra strain. When the fact of the matter is, from the example of the Lord, we should be viewing prayer as a pressure release. A way of getting rid of the strain. And the stress of our lives. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And we often apply that to the unbelievers. But it's for us. Perhaps more even than they. Every day of every moment of our lives. We are to keep coming to the Lord. To unburden ourselves and to receive grace and mercy to help us in time of need. Paul is explicit in that regard in Philippians 4. We are to be anxious for nothing. Pray about everything. And be thankful for anything. But the way we relieve our stresses and anxieties is through prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, the Lord Jesus never had a needless pain. 
But what we do see in his life is his method of dealing with this great influx of demand upon him was to pray. Not to dispense of it, but to pray even more. And before he chooses his disciples, he prays all night. I think he deserved a rest after a day like the day he had. But he knew that the secret to cope was prayer. Here's the second secret in his method to coping with the strains of ministry. Not just prayer, but share. In verse 13 to 15, we see that the Lord Jesus brings to him the twelve, choosing them. And Mark tells us that it was a threefold purpose behind the call of the twelve. The first is that they might be with him, verse 14. And we see also there that the second purpose was that he might send them out to preach. And then the third, in verse 15, he wanted to give them power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. I want to look at verse 15 first of all, because this word power is used. And it would be easy to misunderstand its meaning. We're so used with the word power in Scripture being the Greek word dunamē, which we get dynamite from, the power of God unto salvation. But that is not the Greek word that is used here. Rather, the word used here means delegated authority. So what the Lord is doing here is he is delegating responsibility to his disciples, if you like, to spread the load. But he wanted to do more than that. He was desiring to find a way where he could permanently keep his message among humanity and ultimately spread his message across the globe. Of course, the Lord Jesus knew that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him. But he also knew that he had come into the world to bleed and to die, to be delivered up for the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And he knew that he was going to die Three days later, rise again, and then 40 days later, ascend to heaven, and it would be left to his disciples to propagate the gospel throughout the globe. And so he had to have a strategy so his message would survive when he was away. So choosing the disciples was not simply to spread the load, but to spread the message. And he did it by choosing these 12 men. Now please note this. This was Christ's method for ministry. Twelve men. Now, who were they? Well, they were twelve in number, which is not without its significance. And twelve, uh, sometimes in the Bible, indicates the number of governmental perfection. But there were also twelve tribes of Israel, twelve thrones for judgment on the twelve tribes of Israel, the book of Revelation tells us there are 12 pearly gates in the New Jerusalem, 12 foundations to that same city, and there will be 12 manner of fruits to eat from in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, there are four lists of the apostles that we are given in Scripture. This is only one in Mark's Gospel. If you look at the screen, just for your uh, help, you'll see that one is found in Matthew 10, one is found in Mark 3, one is found in Luke 6, and the other in Acts chapter 1. Now, they all, when you're reading them, seem to be the same, but as you glance at them in greater detail, you'll see that they differ somewhat. For instance, Mark 
and Matthew have the name Thaddeus in the list, while Luke, in both of his lists, remember he wrote the Acts of the Apostles and Luke's Gospel, he has the name Judas of James. Now, of course, uh, they are the same person. Some think that Judas may have been James's original name, and he changed it later to Thaddeus, which means warm-hearted, to avoid the stigma that had been attached to the name Judas uh, because of Judas Iscariot. Now, all these four lists in Scripture begin with Simon Peter. You can see that. They list a bit hard uh, to see, perhaps, but if you squint, you can see Simon at the top of them all. And they all end with Judas Iscariot, except that is Acts, because Judas by that time had killed himself, was deceased. And also you see that these four lists are, are gathered together and appear in three groups of four names. So Peter, Andrew, James, and John are always in the first group, though not always in that order. And Philip, Bartholomew, who incidentally is also Nathaniel, who you find in John's Gospel, Thomas and Matthew are always in the second group. Uh, James, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot are always in the third group, of course, except Acts where Judas is left out. It's interesting. In all four lists given in the Scriptures, Peter's name always heads the first group because he always heads the full list of disciples. Philip always heads up the second group, as you can see, and James always heads up the third group, and it may suggest that uh, Simon Peter, Philip, and James were prominent leaders in the early church and among the first apostles. And also you can note that the apostles uh, seem to be listed in the order in which they were converted and called by Jesus, at least that applies to the first four. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were the first to be called to follow the Lord. And then, of course, after them came Philip and Nathaniel. John chapter 1, you can read about that. And it's interesting also to note in Mark's account of these names that they're given in twos. Not only are they grouped in, in these three groups of four each, but they're named in twos. So it's uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. James and John, so on and so forth. And we know from Mark 6 and verse 7 that this reflects the fact that Jesus sent the twelve out two by two to serve the Lord. I'm just encouraging you to look in more detail at Scripture. The Holy Spirit does not arrange things in a haphazard way. Everything that is in God's Word is ordered and is there for a reason for our attention. And let's look at these twelve. There are three things generally speaking, that I want to say about the servants' servants. The first is in keeping with what we learned about last week, and it's simply this. The twelve were young. They were young men. James E. Stewart comments on this. Christianity began as a young people's movement. Unfortunately, it is a fact which Christian art and Christian preaching have too often obscured. But it is quite certain that the original disciple band was a young men's group. Most of the apostles were probably still in their 20s when they went out after Jesus. And he also points out in his commentary that the hymn we sang around the Lord's table, uh, penned by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, in its original version went like this. When I survey the wondrous cross, 
on which the young prince of glory died. Stuart goes on, no one has ever understood the heart of youth in its gaiety and gallantry and generosity and hope, its sudden loneliness and haunting dreams and hidden conflicts and strong temptations. No one has understood it nearly so well as Jesus. And no one ever realized more clearly than Jesus did that the adolescent years of life, when strange dormant thoughts are stirring and the whole world begins to unfold, are God's best chance with the soul. What a telling remark. It's wonderful to know if you're a young person that Jesus understands what young people go through because he called a band of young people around him. But the reason why he called young men was they were teachable. They were receptive. And he knew that God's best chance with the soul is when it is young like the children, like the young people. So when we study the, the story of the first 12, you've got to realize, first of all, something that is often missed. This is a young man's adventure. We're studying about a group of young men that Jesus has called. So here's the first characteristic of the servant's servants. They were young. Here's the second characteristic. Not only were they young, they were ordinary. Despite what Christian art through history portrays to us, there were no halos adorning the heads of these 12 men. Indeed, Mark seems more than any other gospel record uh, throughout his gospel to go out of his way to emphasize the imperfections of these 12 men, especially Peter. And we know that Peter gave him the information for his gospel. In many ways, he was the leader of the 12. And he set forth, to a large extent, as a, a man who kept feeling and letting the Lord down. Now, Mark does this not to belittle the twelve, but he wants to make the grace of God and the wonder of this gospel all the more wonderful. By setting it in contrast to the man Christ called, the man Christ would use. Second Corinthians puts it so well. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And so these disciples were not supermen. The early Christians were not supermen and superwomen. They were only sinners saved by grace. And that's why we see them warts and all to show this. And Mark especially, I believe, wants us to see that the servants of the suffering servant were only men and women like you and I. With all our weaknesses, with our same foibles, struggles, temptations, sins. And I think... It isn't a coincidence. I've told you that the Holy Spirit doesn't put things in here to fill the story out. That these men had nicknames. And some of them were given by Jesus to them. Simon became Peter. Stone or rock. And of course, the sons of thunder, James and John, because of their temperament. Leslie Flynn says something that 
wonderfully sets forth the ordinariness of these men. This is what he said, quoting a sermon by Peter Marshall called Disciples in Clay. Peter Marshall depicts the apostles appearing before an examining board to be appointed to to be Jesus' close associates. He says, Peter stood there smelling of fish, uncouth and uncultured, impulsive and impetuous. Andrew, James and John also reek of fish oil and lacked refinement. Philip appeared indecisive. Thomas radiated cynicism. Matthew was considered a traitor to his country. Zealot Simon was a dangerous revolutionary. Judas was a thief. Without whitewash, he says, the New Testament paints them as they were. A group not most likely to succeed. And it is likely that some of the disciples would not have chosen each other to be members of the same group. Why did Jesus choose these twelve? Simply because his purpose was to show that God can be glorified in using men like these Men and women, just as we are. Ordinary. Hope you know you're ordinary. Paul reflects this, for ye see your calling, 1 Corinthians 1. How not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It doesn't say not any, but it does say not many. It's not the norm. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world. And the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He chooses the weak so that his strength can be made perfect in their weakness. Judging by worldly standards, these twelve had no special qualifications. They weren't wealthy. They had no social position. They had no special education. They were not trained theologians, high-ranking churchmen, or ecclesiastics, but twelve ordinary men. The servants' servants were young. The servants' servants were ordinary. And thirdly, the servants' servants were diverse. And there's two ways that I want to show you this morning how they were different. But before I look at those two, we, we see from the outset of their conversion that they were led differently to the Lord Jesus, just as, of course, all of us were. John and Andrew were helped by the preaching of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner before the Lord Jesus. They were helped by a preacher. Some of you have been saved through the ministry of a man of God who has preached God's word. Peter and Nathaniel were helped by Philip. He was a personal worker. And I think more have been helped through personal work, individual one-to-one conversation about their soul than through preachers. And then Philip and Matthew were brought to Christ by direct divine intervention, the Lord Jesus himself. And there are some people who are converted and no one is near them. God just speaks to them and they come to faith in the Lord Jesus. What a different group. Different even in how they came to know the Lord. But it takes all sorts to serve him. And that is seen in these two ways 
these two aspects of diversity that I want to share with you. The first is, they were different in their personality and their biography. The personalities were different in their life stories. Peter was the spokesman, and he seems to be the only one that was in this role. And he was a strong personality, always to the point. And his strong point was the fact that he spoke out for the Lord. But isn't it interesting, like many of us, his strong point was also his weak point, and often he spoke out when he shouldn't have. James became one of the first Christian martyrs. He had a short life. He died early. And there are some of us here today, and some whom we remember, who died early in a relative sense. And we need to face the fact that not all of us have the same amount of time in which to serve the Lord. And most of us don't know how long we have. And it bodes well that we serve him with all our might in the days that we've got. John was the opposite of James. He was long living. When all the other brothers were gone, Peter and Andrew had died. And even Philip and Stephen had deceased. John's still living. I wonder, you who could be classified in old age here this morning, are you still serving the Lord with the days that God has given you left? Then there's Andrew, the personal worker. He won his brother to Christ. Then Philip, also a personal worker, won a friend to the Lord Jesus. Nathaniel was the perfectionist. Thomas was the pessimist. Matthew was the secularist the traitor to the Jewish cause, and Simon was his antithesis. He was a zealot, a terrorist, a separatist. And then we have James of Alphaeus. And he's just called James the son of Alphaeus. And you could call him so-and-so's son. And then there's Thaddeus, or Judas as we have seen, or Labius. And you could almost name him, what's his name? We hardly know what to call him. And then there's Judas, the betrayer. And these last three, in a sense, because of how little we know about them from the scriptures, they could be classed as nobodies. We're not sure what they did. We're not sure how some of them came to Christ. We're not sure exactly of their history, at least from the word of God. And this is such a strange team. Such a variety, a diversity. But here's the whole point. If the Lord can use such a variation and diversity of personalities and biographies, how can we not work together as God people? It's interesting, the Pharisees, who the Lord Jesus has been leveled against up to now in Mark's gospel, they were separatists. That's literally what their name meant, separated ones. And yet Jesus, when he calls a band to fight his cause, he calls a company who would be united. Unity in diversity. So the servants' servants were young. The servants' servants were ordinary. The servants' servants were different in personality and life experience. But here's the second thing they were diverse in. They were diverse in spiritual maturity. See, before they could go with the gospel as missionaries, 
They had to spend time with the Lord Jesus and learn the pattern of life on his life. And they were at different stages in this progression. If you look at the, the first three names uh, on the list, on all of the lists, Peter, James, and John, they could be classed as the inner circle of intimacy in the Lord Jesus' apostles. And we know that because they were chosen by the Lord to witness the raising of Jairus' daughter, uh, to see the transfiguration of the Lord, and to witness the deep agony of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there's this inner circle of intimacy. And then we see in the fourth and fifth names, there, were also, there was also evangelistic practicality. These personal workers, Philip. And then we see, as we move down, skipping a few names in 10 and 11, there were these people that we don't know much about, uh, James of Alphaeus and, and Thaddeus or Judas. And, and we, we're reading between the lines a little bit, but... I offer to you the suggestion that they may have been delayed in their maturity uh, regarding the progress that they were meant to have in discipleship with the Lord Jesus. So the point is this. They were all at different stages. And yet the Lord chose them all. The Lord was discipling them all. The Lord loved them all. And praise God, they all got there in the end. Is that not encouraging? The goal of the school of Christ was to prepare them for missionary service. And to do that, he had to bring them into intimacy with himself. The servants, servants were different in their spiritual maturity, but all of them were moving towards greater intimacy. I want you to look just at this diagram because it's been a help to me in my life. And, and it shows this progress. These uh, circles. If you look at the outer circle, you'll see that the little key to it, it's the number 5,000. You remember the Lord fed the 5,000 and he provided for them. But you know that he said many of them only came for the loaves and the fishes for the provision. But then we see and in the Gospels there was 500 men who followed the Lord Jesus by faith. They believed in him. In other words, they were saved. And yet there were 70 who the Lord Jesus called as disciples. And they served the Lord. They went further than just believing in him, but they became his disciples, his apprentices, his assistants, one who learned at his feet. But these 12 we're looking at this morning, they were in the place of fellowship that the Lord took to himself to be with him and to take on his cause forever. And yet even within these 12, there were different degrees of maturity and spiritual uh, intimacy. And we see Peter, James, and John that had that place of privilege with the Lord on very special occasions. And yet even among those three, there was one the disciple whom Jesus loved. The Lord Jesus seemed to have a, a special intimacy with John, the beloved disciple. All at different stages. Does that not encourage you? It doesn't mean that because you're maybe not as far on as someone else and not going at a, as fast a pace as another Christian you know that God has no use for you. Christ chose them all, worked with them all, and got to the point of maturity with them all eventually. But the point is this. 
they were transformed. And if you don't believe that, all you need to do is read the Acts of the Apostles. Someone has put it when their exceptional training with Christ was anointed with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This nondescript, ragtag, dullish, fearful, unlearned gang of throne climbers and deserters was transformed into a revitalized, united, godly band of flaming and courageous evangelists who access turned the world upside down. Against all the odds. Now we started off this message asking, how did the Lord Jesus cope with the pressure of a broadening ministry? And how did he provide for the witness of his message to succeeding generations? And we must answer this question from scripture because we have the same challenge. How do we cope when our ministry broadens? How do we provide for a witness in, in the generations that are yet to be? Well, the first thing I want to say to you, if you haven't got the message yet, is there's a job for everyone in this regard. No one exempt. No matter how great or little the gift you feel you have to give, even if only you're getting a boat for Jesus, like we see in verse 9, the disciples doing. If you can lend them a boat, you have something to do. But you see... The inference of what we have read together this morning is if you want to assist the Lord Jesus, the most important thing is that you're with him. He called these disciples to be with him. We have to abide in the Lord Jesus and there is our strength and preparation for anything we do. But how do we spread the load and how do we spread the message? Well, we see it in the example of how the Lord makes these 12 ambassadors, these 12 apostles. He is with them. You can't do this at a distance. He called these men as a small group. And into that small group he invested his time, training, his whole life. He took three, some would say four years to do it. They lived together for that whole period. And there is more time Jesus spends with these men than any other people in the Gospels put together. He was with them. And if we are going to see God's witness go on to further generations, we have got to be together, discipling each other. Now, those apostles were ordered to make disciples, apprentices of themselves. And Jesus told the apostles to get a convert. Get someone saved and teach them everything I taught you. And here's the three things, the three directives the Lord Jesus gave the apostles on how to make disciples. First of all, he tells them to evangelize, Mark 16, 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's not enough getting people saved. You've got to disciple them. And that's where Matthew 28, 19 and 20, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. But not only do you get them saved and disciple them, but you've got to train leaders. 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things that you've heard of me, Timothy, Paul says, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There is a method. I get a little bit tired of this attitude. Que sera, sera, whatever it will be, will be the Spirit of God will do it all. We just sit in our hands and do nothing. Doesn't work like that. Didn't work like that for the Lord Jesus, the apostles, or the early disciples. There was methodology, biblical. 
And we might ask, why do we lack converts today? Why, why are people not developing into disciples of the Lord? Why are we looking everywhere for leaders for another generation? Could it be that we have adopted our own methods? Or maybe no methods? And this method of Christ has been neglected. Indeed, it's a method of ministry in the church. Ephesians 4, go home and read it. 11 to 13. Pastors, evangelists, um, teachers... Prophets and apostles are gifts to the church that they might equip the church to do works of ministry. There's a shared responsibility as we spread the load and spread the message. And what the apostles effectively did, they reproduced themselves in ever-widening circles of outreach. And in one sense, we are the continuing fruit of their service. And so there's no telling what can be done, what far-reaching influence we can have if we implement the master's method. This was the system that the servants, servants used to propagate the message. This was how they would carry on the message after his ascension. My question to you here is how will you carry it on in the next generation? We must be using this method. Now I'm going to close with an old legend, and it is just that, so take it uh, in that light. It's an old legend that imagines the Lord Jesus arriving in heaven after his ascension. And the angels are there to welcome him. And the angel Gabriel asks the Lord Jesus, Lord, you suffered so much. You died for sins of mankind. Does everyone on the earth know about it? Oh no, replies the Savior. Just a handful of folks in Jerusalem and Galilee know about it. Well, Lord, continued Gabriel, what's your plan for everyone in the world to know your great love? And the master replied, well, I asked all my apostles to carry the message into all the world and I told them to tell others who will in turn tell others until the last person in the farthest corner has heard the story. The legend goes that Gabriel's face clouds for he suspects a potential problem with the Lord's plan. And he says to the Lord, but Lord, what if Peter forgets and goes back to the fishing in Galilee? And James and John and Andrew suppose Matthew returns to his tax booth in Capernaum and all the others lose their zeal and just don't tell others what then? The story goes that after a pause came a calm voice of the Lord himself, Gabriel, I have no other plan. That's his plan. For you to take the gospel. For you to disciple Christians. For you to train leaders who will be the servants' servants for a day that is yet to be. Are we doing it? Will we do it? Please go to the glory of the Lord Jesus. We will follow his example. Our Father, we thank you that when the Lord Jesus called his apostles to send them forth, he brought them to be with himself. 
help us to spend time with the Lord Jesus. We thank you also he gave them a message and we thank you that by grace we have received it. And he gave them power and authority to go out and preach it. And whilst we are not apostles, we thank you that we have the Holy Spirit, that power that demonstrates the gospel message to those who receive it. Lord, give us an ability to follow the method of the Master in preaching the gospel to all creatures, making disciples, training leaders, that your cause may go on in this place. We know it will go on forever until the Lord comes. For the, G- the Lord Jesus said he would build his church in the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. And yet, Father, we see the churches of Ephesus, and most of them are not there today, because they lost the method and the message and the power. May we not lose our candlestick here, Lord, but reignite the flame of every heart. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen.